Turn with me, if you would, in the, in the Bible to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and good morning. Good to see everybody out in the house of the Lord today. It's a blessing to be with you all and to be with my good friend Joseph again. And um, you all are blessed as a church to have Joseph as your pastor. I know you know that. Uh, but to see what God is doing here is amazing. I'm looking through the auditorium, and you guys are going to have to get some more seats soon, which is, that's a blessing. And uh, praise the Lord for that. We're going to be in John chapter 17 this morning, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to read down to verse number 5. I've been tasked with the subject, Magnifying the Glory of Christ. And I'm adding a subtitle to that. I'm going to add, In Our Salvation. Magnifying the Glory of Christ in Our Salvation. Spurgeon Catechism asks, What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so we're going to glorify Him this morning through the preaching of His Word. But let's look at verse number 1 of John 17, and we'll read down to verse number 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are so thankful to be gathered here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you for my good friend Joseph. And Lord, just what you're doing in this place, we give you praise for it. Now, Father, as we look at the subject before us this morning, as we think about magnifying your glory and our salvation, Lord, we rejoice because our salvation is all of you. And Lord, we, we rejoice and glorify you because were it not for your grace, all of us, Lord, would be condemned this morning. So God, we, we thank you, we praise you, and we glorify you. Lord, if there be one this morning that is unconverted, it's our prayer that you would draw them to yourself that, Lord, they would see your glory in salvation. And that, Father, they would repent of their sins and put their faith in you alone. Lord, we love you and we pray that you bless the sermon. We ask all this in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, in preparing for this sermon, I picked up the Puritan paperback by John Owen. And it's entitled, The Glory of Christ. And I want to read you an excerpt of that book in the beginning of this sermon But John Owen said this, he said, Only a steady view of the glory of Christ by faith will graciously revive from inward spiritual declensions and decays and fill with fresh springs of grace even in old age. This truth is confirmed by Scripture and is the joyful experience of multitudes of believers. So I admonish you this morning, those of you that... Perhaps you have grown stale in your spiritual life. Those that feel distant from the Lord. What's going to help you this morning to revive that is catching a clear view of the glory of Christ. The more we know of Christ, the more we dwell on Him and we dwell on His attributes and we learn about who He is, it just causes the believer to want to worship Him more. And I know you've probably been to places before where it's almost like everyone is dead and they're not excited to be in church. But isn't it wonderful to be in a church where people beheld the glory of God throughout the week 
and they're worshiping him here on Sunday. And that is what happens when we dwell on the glory of Christ. The Christian will continue to grow more and more in grace until the end of their days. There are a lot of, I always say, seasoned saints. That's a lot nicer to put it in the room this morning. But you understand that the more that you grow in grace, the more you understand that you're becoming more and more sanctified your entire life. We never are fully sanctified this side of heaven. But we are growing in grace as we catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ. John Owen also put it this way. He said, grace in our lives as believers is like a river that grows stronger when it reaches the ocean to which it's returning. And that is the the older believer that is nearing death. The the grace that is in them is like the river is widening towards the end. And the believer that gets close to death, isn't it comforting to know that God gives us dying grace as we dwell on his glory? So I ask you this morning, are you growing in this grace? Have you, when is the last time that you dwelt on the glory of Jesus in your salvation? So this is our goal this morning as we unpack the text to get those here to dwell on the glory of Jesus, to dwell on him. I'm not going to be giving a lot of stories or my opinions on anything. I I want to just give you the word of God and get you to think on God's glory this morning in your salvation. So to get into our text, it's very important for us to remember something. Jesus put aside the eternal glory that he had with the Father from the beginning and made himself of no reputation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 tells us that he took on the form of a man, became a slave, and was obedient unto death. There was no emptying of his divine attributes, but there was an emptying of this glory that he had with the Father from the beginning. And so for the sake of redemption, for the sake of the ultimate glory of the Father, Christ became obedient unto death to save his people from their sins. And it is for these reasons that Jesus put aside his own glory, but for a season. He did it to save his people from their sins. And we rejoice in that this morning. So let me give you a few points in outline form. I want to look at verses 1 through 2. And number 1, I want you to notice the Father's plan to glorify the Son. The Father's plan to glorify the Son. Look again at verse number one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This portion of scripture is the high priestly prayer of Jesus in which he prays for himself, for his disciples, for the church. And he's praying for the glory of the father. And in verse number one, Jesus began his prayer with very decisive words over and over in the gospel of John. We hear Jesus speaking about his hour, his hour, referencing his humiliation and the hour of his exaltation because his glory was to come through his shame on the cross. This is why he came. The moment planned by the Trinity from all eternity past was at hand. Jesus needed to say certain things to the Father. So what does he do? And he sets a precedent for us here. He prays. How often we neglect this means of grace when things are going 
south in our lives. We are quick to run from God, run from prayer. But that is the means of grace that God has given us to strengthen us in our hour of need. And Christ here is praying. He said, the hour has come. And then he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Understand this morning that when you and I seek glory, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. And we try to make things about us. We do so at the expense of pointing this lost world to God the Father. I told our church last week, the church isn't about us. It's about God. If you come to church thinking it's about you and and your glory, whatever it might be, you are robbing the glory from the Father. But look at what Jesus does at the end of verse 1. He asked the Father to glorify Him, and it was not at the expense of the Father because the glorification of the Son was the same as the glorification of the Father. So Jesus is saying, Lord, glorify me, and I know if I'm glorified, ultimately you are going to be glorified. This is the will of the Father, that Christ would come and die for the sins of his people. Look at verse number two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Again, Jesus talks about those whom the Father had given to him. These statements caused Many back in John chapter 6 to cease following Jesus as this radical call to discipleship Christ lays out. If you don't hate your father or your mother or your children, he said, you have to love me above all of these things. These statements stress something. And in John chapter 6, it says, no man comes to the father unless the father draws me. What is Christ referring to in John 17 too, and then in John chapter 6? It's stressing the Father's sovereign role in our salvation. Our salvation is of Him. Who do we owe it to this morning? Not us, but to God. Definite atonement teaches that the Lord Jesus died for a definite group of people. And I want you to look again at verse number 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. There is a group of people that have been given to the Son. None of Christ's blood is wasted on the ground. His blood satisfies the penalty for the sins of those that He died for. And when we believe in the definite atonement, we understand that who Christ died for, He will save. He will convert. The Father had given Jesus a group of people, those you have given me, as the end of verse number 2 says. And praise God this morning, His blood never fails for those to whom it was given. So number one, we see the Father's plan is to glorify the Son. And ultimately, through the Son's glorification, the Father is glorified. Which leads us, secondly, number 2, in verse, we're going to stay in verse 2 for this point. Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has given him. I want to unpack this truth some more so it got its own point. (laughs) Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has given him. The Bible teaches that the value of Christ's death on the cross was great enough to cover all the sins of every person that ever lived, but it applies only to those who put their faith in Christ. There are two basic ways people 
unpack verse number 2 of John 17 and other passages in the Scripture. One understanding is that from all of eternity, God had a desire to save as many people as possible from out of the fallen human race. So He conceived of a plan of redemption by which He would send His Son into the world to be the sin-bearer for fallen people. Jesus would go to the cross. He would die for all who at some point would trust Him. So this first understanding is provisional. The idea is that Jesus died potentially for everybody. This sounds good. But it is possible that the whole thing would be in vain because every last person in the world might reject Jesus and choose to remain dead in their trespasses and sins. And this this is the prevailing view in a lot of churches today. That salvation rests on each individual person, that it is just provisional. But here's the biblical view. The one that is unpacked throughout the Gospel of John says that God from all eternity past devised a plan that was not provisional. It was plan A. There was no plan B. And under this plan, God decreed that He would save a certain number of people out of fallen humanity. People whom the Bible calls the elect. God sent His Son into the world with a specific aim and a design to accomplish this redemption. And the title of our sermon is The Glory of Christ. Who gets the credit for this salvation? Christ. This was accomplished fully. Again, I'm repeating myself. Without one drop of Christ's blood being wasted on the ground. For whom he shed his blood. They will be converted. Everyone whom the father elected for salvation will be saved through this atonement. Now the Bible teaches us in John that Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus speaks as these sheep as those whom God had have given him. There are sheep and then there are goats. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, if you want to look into that verse later on, it says, No man cometh unto the Father unless the Father draws him. And that word draw, if you look out the definition, it means to drag or to compel to come. John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus is teaching that everyone whom the Father designed to come to his Son would come. Does this mean that we do not preach the gospel and just throw up our hands and say, What will be, will be? No. Now we preach the gospel to everyone and trust that the power of God is in the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, what's going to happen? Christ's sheep will hear his voice and they'll come to him. Your salvation from start to finish rests on the sovereign decree of our God. He had mercy on you. Not because of anything you have done. Not because of your goodness. Not because he looked down a long period of time and saw that you would one day do something. No. You are saved this morning, converted, because of the Father's love for the Son. And he promised the Son that he had a group of people for him. So please follow this thought. The only reason under heaven that I can give you this morning of why I am a Christian is because I am a gift From the Father to Jesus the Son. 
And he gets all the glory for it. Jonathan Edwards says, I trying to remember this quote right. Said, I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin which made it necessary. That is what you've contributed to your salvation. You're a sinner and you needed saving. It's not because of anything that we have done. It's not because of anything we will ever do. It is because of the sovereign grace of God. And you can remember, I'm sure, the time when when you were converted, where you felt this drawing from the Lord, this pulling to be converted, to repent of your sins and to trust Christ. And there might be one here this morning that is part of God's flock where the Holy Spirit is doing that work right now, where he's drawing you to repentance and faith. You say, what do I do? It's not some magic formula. We're not have you raise a hand, but we are going to tell you to repent and believe the gospel and trust in him alone for your savior. Thirdly, this morning, we're going to look at verses three through five now. And the third heading is Jesus secured the salvation of the elect. He secured the salvation You and I, once again, if we are saved, are not elected because of anything good in us. We are elect in Christ Jesus as one whom the Father gave to the Son. And Jesus makes this a little clearer later on in this passage. I want you to look down at verse number 9. Verse 9 of John 17 says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. It's so clear. This this doctrine, unfortunately, is hated by many. But it's so clear in John chapter 17. He is not praying for everyone in verse number 9. This all-inclusive spirit that permeates our churches has also permeated our doctrine as well. And it leads to confusion in the church. But suppose... Christ did, in fact, make atonement for all people and every sin that has ever been committed. This doctrine would be called universalism. This would include the sin of unbelief. (laughs) Therefore, a person could remain an unbeliever all of his or her life, never submit to Christ, die in their sin, and God would not condemn this person because his sins are covered in this false theological system. It all goes back to this. People do not like being told they are wrong. They also don't like being told that their salvation is not a little part of their work and God's. No, it's all of God's work. He converts. He regenerates. He changes our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh and causes us to believe in him. Rejoice in that this morning. So here's where the rubber meets the road. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are part of this elect crowd that Jesus is praying for here in our text. If you are lost this morning, this should get your attention. Are you redeemed? Are you a part of the family of God? Is there any drawing in your heart towards Christ for salvation? Let me be a little more specific. Are you depending on something else for your salvation other than Christ alone? Even more specific, since you've been converted, has the Lord given you a heart and an affection for him? This is where true conversion shows itself. We love the Lord. 
We want to be in his word. We want to be in his house. We want to be around God's people. We love this. But if you're here this morning and you could care less and you're waiting to get back home to live in sin and you're planning out your week even right now of how you're not going to walk with Christ, that is a clear sign of not being born again. It is only when you understand that we have nothing to earn, we, can, we have done nothing to earn our way into heaven, that even our faith is a gift from God, that it is by grace alone that we can say with the early reformers, one of the five solas, soli deo gloria, Amen. glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. The Roman Catholic Church, they wanted some of that glory for themselves. They would ask for indulgences, you know, pay to have your sins forgiven. Come to the confessional booth. Pray to these saints that have been here before. Pray, for, pray to them. But those that understand true faith understand that it is by Christ alone. Amen. Those that have received this grace of God should be the first to pray with Jesus that the Father might be glorified. Church, this is our prayer. As we are looking at our title of the sermon this morning, the glory, magnifying the glory of Christ, that is the desire of every true believer. Amen. Lord, use my life to glorify you. How can we do this? How can we glorify Christ? We glorify Him by the way we live. When problems arise, I mean, if you have had a problem lately, we can be different from the world. The world runs to different things, don't they? It runs to drugs. It runs to different ways to alleviate the pain they're going to. But as a child of God, we run to God. We run to Christ. We trust Him in these times. We lead our families, men, to know and to walk with the Lord. This is how we glorify God. Look at verse number 4 again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's interesting to note Jesus prayed this the night before his passion. The cross hasn't even happened yet, but Jesus already is speaking of his mission being completed. How did he do this? Again, it was pre-planned by God. What God has decreed to happen from eternity past will come to pass. As I, glorif I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Then look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In effect, here's what Jesus is saying in verse number five. I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to return from where I came from. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. He's accomplished the will of the Father. Now he's saying, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. Christ was with the Father throughout all of eternity. As John chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Throughout all of eternity, this was planned. Christ left all of that to obey the will of the Father, to come to die for the sins of His people. But it doesn't end there, right? To raise again. This kind of sermon makes the Christian rejoice. It makes us think of our salvation in a way where we 
who say, wow, I have to glorify God for this. Knowing that our salvation rests in the hands of a sovereign God makes us as his people humbly cry out, Lord, thank you. Should not cause us to be cold or calloused, but rather in humility we say, Lord, who am I to deserve the richness of your grace? As John Newton wrote that famous hymn that we sing all the time, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What caused John Newton to see? He really tried, didn't he? That was the grace that John was writing about. The amazing grace of God. Our prayer is that God's word will cut to the stony heart of any unregenerate person that might be here this morning. I don't know why you're here. Maybe someone made you come. <laughs> Maybe your parents drug you out of bed this morning and made you, made you come to the house of God. But our prayer is that the gospel of God and his word will cut the heart of an unregenerate person and will convert them. He can do it. He can take someone that is a hater of God, change them completely and make them a lover of God. Say, give me an example. Paul. <laughs> Paul was on his way to imprison Christians, throw them in jail, to persecute them. And Paul, in his own strength, all of a sudden decided, you know what, I think I want to be a Christian. Is that what happened? No, he was met with a very bright light on that road to Damascus. God changed him. A hater of God. A hater of Christians. All of a sudden now, his name is changed to Paul. And Paul begins to go out and preach. To start churches. To go out on missionary journeys. And who does Paul give all of the glory to? God. God. Are you born again this morning? John Knox, as he lay dying in 1572, he said to his wife, Margaret, he said, go read to me where I first cast my anchor. Margaret knew immediately what to do. She reached for a Bible, opened it to John chapter 17, the text we just read, and read to her husband the first three verses of John chapter 17. She knew that this was where John Knox first met Christ as his Savior. This passage served as both the first and last anchor for John Knox. The last words John Knox heard this side of eternity was the verses I want to read to you one more time as we get ready to close. Think on these words. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Church, that is eternal life. Do you know God? Have you been converted? Do you love Him? If there's no love for Him, my prayer is that the Lord would regenerate your heart for Him this morning.